0: This week we have a special episode. I have two guests on the podcast. William Perry, the former US Defence Secretary who served under Bill Clinton and who now works on, amongst other things, educating the public on the dangers of nuclear weapons. Our other guest is Tom Colina, Director of Policy at the Ploughshares Fund, who worked to, quote, reduce and eventually eliminate the dangers posed by nuclear weapons. The reason for our interview today is that the two men have co-written a book called The Button, the new nuclear arms race and presidential power from Truman to Trump, and they were kind enough to talk to me about it. One major theme of the book is how dangerous it is to have America's ICBMs, its intercontinental ballistic missiles, its nuclear missiles, sitting in their silos in a constant state of readiness. We might think that the nuclear threat has abated, after all the Cold War is over, and so surely those things aren't still underground ready to go, but they are. And that's another theme of the book, how blissfully unaware many of us are of these facts. Perhaps we've allowed ourselves to relax as the Soviet Union has gone, the Warsaw Pact dissolved, the Iron Curtain fell and the Berlin Wall was pulverised. So sure, great, there's been plenty of change since 1989, but some things have remained horribly constant and One of them is that America's nuclear missiles are still sitting there in their silos on hair trigger alert, ready to fly, just waiting for someone to turn the key. Now, isn't that ridiculous? You don't have to be um, a lefty, as they say, or someone in favour of disarmament to see a lot of flaws in that system. It's a system that was created, of course, because of the Soviet threat. But there is no Soviet threat because there is no Soviet Union. There's no Cold War anymore. There's no country threatening America with a bolt from the blue attack where the president would be shaken awake at 3am and told the Russians have launched missiles incoming, minutes to decide what to do. That particular threat has gone, or at least is now hugely minimised. But still, the missiles sit there, under the American planes, ready to go. Why? Why? Well, the cold, hard answer is that they're ready to go because a president would only have minutes to decide whether to launch them, if indeed a nuclear attack was incoming. The president in that scenario is stuck with a use-it-or-lose-it scenario. If he doesn't press the button, as they say, and send those missiles flying, then they, or at least most of them, will be destroyed on the ground by the incoming Russian nuclear missiles. So, yes, it's a use-it-or-lose-it scenario. Minutes to decide. Quick, quick, hurry. Are you pressing the button or not? Use it or lose it. And, of course, the Use it or lose it idea brings with it a horrible risk. What if the president is told missiles are incoming, minutes to decide, our ICBMs are ready to go sir, shall we launch, shall we use them or lose them? And so the president might press the button. He only has minutes to decide and as far as he knows and as far as his advisors are telling him a Russian missile attack is incoming. So what if he presses that button, only to find out, a few minutes later, that it was a false alarm? There is no incoming Russian attack. It was simply a mistake. A human error. Or a computer glitch. Or even, these days perhaps, a malicious cyber attack. What then? Well, nothing then. You can't recall the missiles once they're up and out. But neither can the president wait for some more concrete evidence of the attack to see explosions on the ground, because by that point, it's too late. Use it or lose it. So because of this terrifying shortage of time, the ICBMs sit there, they sat there during the Cold War, and they sit there now on hair-trigger alert. And the system is set to launch on warning, Meaning, the President can unleash them simply on warning of an attack. He doesn't need to sit and wait to see, with his own eyes, enemy missiles hitting the ground, hitting the cities. He can respond and retaliate merely on the warning of an incoming attack. A warning which, of course, could be false. And that's what this new book, The Button, warns us about. And what my guests will explain to us today. How dangerous and unsteady and unpredictable the whole thing is. How it's all based on speeds and the ability to respond and to retaliate quickly. Get them before they get you. Get the missiles off the ground before they're nuked. Speed of response seems to matter more than accuracy and confirmation. And of course the cherry on the cake is that, uh, in the case of America, this whole unsteady, unreliable system can be unleashed on the order of one man. The president, of course. The authors question that too. Is it right that one man can effectively destroy civilization? Is it right that we're still clinging to a system set up to fight the Cold War? one where America was constantly poised for a bolt from the blue attack. And if that specific threat has diminished, why does the system set up to meet it remain the same? So where is the threat now? If it's not from the Soviet Union, then who is it coming from? Why is America still poised and ready and watching for an attack? Well, the book warns us fiercely about the risk of stumbling into nuclear war by mistake, either due to political mistakes or from a technical error or computer glitch. Added to that, we now also have the threat of cyber attack. With the missiles ready to launch on warning, is it impossible to imagine a cyber attack designed to provoke a war? One where the Americans are told, maliciously of course, that they are under attack. I assume we've all seen Dr. Strangelove, where the bombers launch, and then one of them cannot be returned. Moscow is told it was all a terrible mistake, but tough luck. The Russians have no choice but to retaliate. And the film ends to the scene of mushroom clouds rippling across the globe. So, in the absence of the Soviet Union... I asked our guests, where does the biggest threat of nuclear war come from today? Tom Kalina opened the discussion, telling us that he is very aware about accidental nuclear war caused by cyber attack. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So, so we know, but most Americans don't know, um, that our command and control system, our early warning systems are all networked. They're all based on computers and they're all vulnerable to cyber attacks. Uh, you would think that wouldn't be true, but in fact it is. And so imagine that there's a cyber attack that uh, shows the system in the system that there's a nuclear attack coming from Russia, but in fact, there is not. Uh, And so the president would have just minutes to decide what to do, to determine whether the attack is real or false. uh, And if they think it's real, how to respond. Um, That to me is the greatest danger we face. And, And because we haven't moved away from our Cold War policies Uh, Our current policies today, which are focused on the wrong threat of a a real attack from Russia, uh, make the, the danger of stumbling into war more dangerous.
0: Then William Perry tells us how easy it might be to stumble into war due to another type of mistake, not a technical one, but a human one, a political miscalculation.
2: The historical example of the Cold War, of course, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Where neither Kennedy nor Khrushchev wanted a nuclear war, were doing everything they could think of to try to avoid it. And yet we almost plundered into one. And that was because of political miscalculations they were making based on false information, faulty information. Kennedy, for example, did not know at the time he was making his decisions that the Russians, besides the medium range missiles they were deploying in Cuba, not yet operational, already had so called tactical nuclear missiles in Cuba. With nuclear weapons, operational, fully ready to go. So, had he accepted the recommendation, the strong recommendation of his military advisors for a conventional military attack on Cuba, our troops would have been decimated on the beachhead with tactical nuclear weapons, and a general nuclear war would surely have followed. That's what I would call political miscalculation, in this case, based on completely faulty information. And I must say, the faulty information in a situation like that is, is the norm, not the exception. Um, wars are made, wars are fought in, in the environment of faulty information sometimes catastrophically faulty
0: So then, it seems it can be ludicrously easy to trip into nuclear war Why then does America still almost seem to lure the day closer by having its ICBMs sitting there on launch on warning I asked why we persist with such a policy particularly when the need for quick reactions and when the threat of a bolt from the blue attack have obviously dwindled perhaps I wondered it's a psychological thing America of course was attacked by surprise with Pearl Harbour and then of course the Russians suffered the mother of all surprise attacks in 1941 so maybe there's a stubborn Determination after those awful incidents to be watchful evermore, to never be taken by surprise again. And so the missiles are ready, always ready to go. And the President knows he can launch them on the mere warning of an attack. Not on evidence of an attack. Merely on the warning of one.
2: The Cold War is long gone, but our mentality... Is not gone. Our Cold War mentality still remains. We still think in terms of the Cold War and we still maintain without rethinking them, the policies we established during the Cold War. And during the Cold War, we believed that the main threat to the United States was a surprise attack from the Soviet Union. A bolt out of the blue is what we called it. And that because of that, we had to take... Provisions for that kind of an attack, and in particular, we were concerned that the surprise attack might be aimed at our ground-based <laughs> missiles or ICBMs in silos. When we first built those silos, we built them to protect the missiles from such an attack. But historically, as time went on, the Soviets developed more accurate missiles, so they could strike effectively strike those silos. So what was intended to be an invulnerable basing became a highly vulnerable basing. And so then and now, all of our ICBMs are sitting ducks. uh, they were quite vulnerable to attack. And if indeed the Soviet Union then, Russia today, were to attack us, those would be our our first targets. And therefore, we designed them in such a way that we could launch them before the attack landed. We set up an elaborate... Expensive, highly technical warning system to warn us that an attack was on the way. And a response system that could respond before those missiles hit our ICBMs. All this, what all this amounted to besides a competent, expensive warning system was a president was prepped to launch his ICBMs in sort of five minutes notice. So everything was oriented around a quick launch. And we achieved this amazing capability, but there was one downside to it, which is if the president in this five or six minutes time he had actually, actually did launch his missiles and then a few minutes later discovered it was mistaken, it was a false alarm, there was nothing he could do about it. He couldn't call the missiles back. He couldn't destroy them. It's flight. Like he would have started a nuclear war, a catastrophic nuclear war. So that was the downside to this famous to this, So this, Marvelous system that we developed. And one might think this is a highly theoretical problem, but it's not theoretical. In my own experience, we've had three false alarms, one of which we came very close, very near to actually launching. So this is a real problem. We're set up for a quick launch because of the belief we had during the Cold War that the Russians were going to make a surprise attack on us, a bolt out of the blue. And we still, without rethinking it, we still somehow um, uh, operate as if that were, that were true. I'm I, convinced it's not true today. I doubt it was ever true. Mm.
1: Julie, if I could just add maybe a political dimension to that, which is, you know, why do we still have these policies? And I think they may have made sense during the Cold War. Uh, they don't make sense today. But what happens is these policies get established within the bureaucracy. Uh, they kind of get baked in. And then it's very hard to change them for a president uh, who may not understand the policies and doesn't think that they have public support to change the policies. Because what's happening is that these policies get politicized. One party adopts them, the other party questions them. Uh, And then for a president to try to change the policy, it becomes exceedingly controversial. And unless they feel they have public support, they don't want to take the risk. Mm -hmm. What we found since the end of the Cold War, the public is not particularly concerned about nuclear weapons. Uh, Certainly not as much as they should be. So one of our goals with this book uh, is to try to use the anniversaries of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, and the upcoming presidential election to raise these issues to see if we can't get some more public support.
0: So we see clearly the dangers of launch on warning. We see the risk of technical error, political miscalculation, and these days, of course, the risk of cyber attack. All of these things can prompt a false alarm which could, in theory, drive a president to launch the missiles and start a nuclear war. Always remembering of course that once launched they cannot be returned. So I asked my guests about the various nuclear false alarms that have been in the US, which have been most concerning, which have pushed us closest to the brink. We hear first from William Perry and then Tom Kalina.
2: One that occurred in, uh, I about 40 years ago. I was during the Cold War. I was the Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering at Thomas in the Pentagon. One night I was woken by a phone call at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And the voice on the other end of the line identified himself as the watch officer at the North American Air Defense Command. And he said his computers were showing 200 ICBMs on the way from the Soviet Union to the United States. How would you like to be woken up in the middle of the night with that kind of a message? Well, he immediately went on to say that he had concluded it was a false alarm. And having concluded it was a false alarm, he was calling me to see if I could help him determine what had gone wrong with his computers. And we could not establish that over the phone that night. A couple of days, he determined it was a faulty chip in one of the computers. Simple, technical mistake. An earlier false alarm, a year earlier, it had been a human error. An operator coming on duty that night, the computer operator put into the computer instead of the operating tape of the computer, he mistakenly put in a simulating, simulating tape. So a very realistic attack was being simulated on the computer and it looked quite real. That was scary. The, one I, the first one I had scrapped you, the one I got the phone call, before the general called me, he had called the White House. Before he realized it was a false alarm, he had called the White House. I alerted them the night. The National Security Advisor took the phone call. And before he woke the president, he got another call telling him it was a false alarm. He thought it was quite real until he got that second call. Another minute, he would have woken the president. And God knows what the president would decide. But he would have told the president he had five minutes to decide whether to launch. Can you imagine a person being confronted with a decision like that? Three o'clock in the morning, just gotten out of bed. That was the system we had then. That's the system we have today. And the false alarms happened then. I know of three of them. And two were, two were technical errors. One was a human error. But humans still err, machines. Still, so we can have another one. And if we do, the president will get this phone call and tell him he has five minutes to decide whether whether to launch his ICBM before our ICBM before they're destroyed in, in the silos. Who knows what the president would decide at that time? No one. is imponderable. But no president, no person should have to make a decision like that. A decision in which the whole c- future civilization hinges on his, his uh, decision. He has a few minutes to make it. Sometimes, in like in, in the situation I described you, know, no context, middle of the night, just gotten up. As no person should have to make that kind of decision. Yet our system, was the way, that's the way it operated then, and that's the way it still operates today.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I might just add that, that another one of the dangers is having unpredictable leadership. Mm. And I think for the United States, certainly President Trump uh, is the most recent unpredictable leader. That draws attention to this issue of sole authority that we give U.S. presidents sole authority to launch nuclear weapons um, without any checks or balances from anybody else, from the Secretary of Defense or Congress, um, or anyone. And, and of course, you know, President Trump is drawing attention to that risk and danger, but he's not the only president that has given us cause for alarm. Uh, you know, President Nixon was known to be drinking uh, late in his time in office. Uh, president Reagan suffered from dementia. Uh, late in his time in office, President Kennedy uh, took pain medications. So all of these things can cloud someone's thinking in a time of crisis. Um, And and so we need to understand that we don't need to give presidents uh, this kind of sole authority to end civilization as we know it. Uh, It's dangerous because all people are fallible, uh, including all presidents. And so we need to move away from this policy
0: with false alarms and faulty chips and the wrong tapes being used and then of course all the false alarms which must have happened in the Soviet Union which we don't know about excepting of course the famous story of Stanislav Petrov the man who saved the world I asked my guests about luck just straightforward good luck what role has luck played in getting us through the Cold War without a nuclear attack?
2: We have survived the nuclear catastrophe more by good luck than by good management. Three false alarms I know of: the Soviet Union, Russia has had false alarms, but not all of which we probably know about. And so we've survived all those false alarms. We've had political miscalculations of a high order, the one I mentioned before with the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were also political miscalculations during one of the Middle East crises we had, and we have survived presidents who were not up to the game at moments, either because they were heavily drinking or because they were under pain medication. So all of these factors we've, we've, we've we've been confronted with and have had to survive and have managed to so far. But we've managed to, as I said, more by luck than by good management. We should not be dependent on luck, future of the civilization. This, this, I might
1: say, is one of the biggest differences between, uh, you know, outside commentators like us and people who are currently running the nuclear infrastructure where they seem to feel that everything is under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the situation under control and that they've reduced the, the, the risk of accidents and, and, and aspects such as luck to a minimal factor. And we just disagree. Uh, we think that, that the role of luck is actually quite large uh, in deterrence. And that, in fact, you can deter an intentional attack from an adversary such as Russia, but you can't deter accidents. Uh, You can't deter false alarms. You can't deter bad judgment. And so it's these intangibles, these luck factors that we think are actually more important uh, than the possibility of an intentional strike from Russia. Uh, Because as we say, you know, Russia is not going to launch such a strike because it would be suicidal for Russia. Any attack, any nuclear attack initiated by Russia, the United States would be able to respond even after the fact, even after the attack, um, and reduce Russia to rubble. And they know this perfectly well. So no rational leader in Russia is going to initiate a nuclear attack against the United States.
0: If you're a realist, you might say luck cannot be relied upon. Luck will one day run out. So how can we defend ourselves? or at least how can we minimize the risk of stumbling into nuclear war or being propelled into it by a cyber attack? Here's Tom Kalina.
1: So that's a great question, and, and I think the answer is, is not what some people think. Some people, I think people often think, well, you, you address cyber attacks by putting up better cyber defenses, and I, I don't think that works. I think the cyber offense is always going to be ahead of the cyber defense. We've seen that time and time again. So the only way to protect against a cyber attack is to change our policy, is to assume that any attack could be a false alarm, could be a cyber attack. And therefore, the answer is to buy the president time. We must give the president more time to fully determine whether an attack is real or not. In other words, every alarm, every alarm of attack should be considered to be a false alarm until proven real. And so the president has to have time to determine that. And to do that, we need to take away the options for quick launch. And that's why we want to do away with sole authority for quick launch. We want to do away with launch on warning. We want to do away with first use of nuclear weapons uh, and the weapons that are more prone to first use, for example, land-based ballistic missiles. Um, So these are the main recommendations we would have for giving the president more time. And more than giving the president more time, we want to take away the options for quick launch that are most dangerous.
0: You heard Tom mention a sole authority there. So let's take a look at that. It refers, of course, to the, shall we say, worrying notion that one man, the president, one man can determine the fate of civilization. And that's obviously no exaggeration. If you know anything about nuclear weapons particularly thermonuclear weapons and it is no exaggeration to say that yes they can end civilization. and I think wherever you are on the disarmament spectrum and I admit I am towards the hopeless pessimistic disgruntled end I think for this foreseeable future at least we are stuck with nuclear weapons even I can see that this is a ludicrous situation It is mad, to me it is almost literally mad, to hand all this world-ending power to one bloke. So I asked my guests to tell me about sole authority. How did we get to this position? I said, uh, having read the book, that it seemed that sole authority being given to the President was a good thing in 1945 as it meant that Truman, a civilian, was keeping this dreadful new weapon away from trigger-happy generals who might have been overly keen to use it in the heat of war. But surely what might have started as a sensible idea has long since deteriorated into something dangerous.
1: I, I think that's fair, and I would say it started out as a mixed thing. Right. And this was one of the things I learned uh, through the the research for the book, which was I had assumed that um, we had sole authority. The United States had sole authority to allow the president to make a quick decision. Right. Because, of course, it only takes 30 minutes for or less for nuclear weapons to get to the United States from Russia. But, of course, in 1945, when Truman declared sole authority, no one else had nuclear weapons other than the United States. So there was no risk of a surprise attack. So the reason Truman did it is when he saw the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, and I don't think he felt particularly involved in the decisions to drop those bombs, uh, he put his foot down and said, no third bomb will be dropped without specific authority from me, the civilian leader. And so I think that was a great decision in that it took the power uh, clearly to the civilian leadership. Uh, for ordering the drop of nuclear weapons. The problem is that he kept it for only one civilian leader himself. He didn't share it with Congress. And so that's one of the main recommendations we make in the book, is that the president should share that authority uh, for first use of nuclear weapons with Congress. And to us, that would be more uh, close in keeping with the U.S. Constitution, which says that Congress should declare war, not the president. And we see the first use of nuclear weapons as the ultimate declaration of war.
0: So the US president has sole authority. That's a frightening prospect, of course, but let's take it further. What if he is somehow irrational? Unthinkable, I know. But what if the president... What if he's gone rogue? What if he has gone mad and actively wants to start a nuclear war? What if he is drinking or on drugs. My next question to my guests, William Perry and Tom Kalina, was how do you stop a deranged or unstable president from starting a nuclear war?
1: Um, the only constraint, the only, the only check on it uh, is the election process. And that process, that check has failed not only with Trump, but with other presidents too. So there's enough historical evidence to say uh, we can't depend on that, uh, on that check, on, on sole authority for the president. So we must change it directly through policy.
0: And do you think the American public are concerned about this? Or are there many people who think, well, the Cold War is over, let's not worry about it?
2: The lack of understanding is, is amazing. It never feels so amaze me when I speak with the public, how little they know about this problem, how little they're concerned about this problem. And since we feel like voices in the wilderness talking about this problem, we sound like prophets of doom. It's a position I don't like to be in. But in fact, the public does not think about this problem at all. And therefore, it does not understand it. And that translates into the Congress not thinking about the problem and not understanding it at all. The few people in the Congress who do understand this issue and are trying to work for it our voices in the wilderness themselves. We have legislation pending in the Congress right now to deal with some of the problems we're talking about. Uh, Senator Markey, Congressman Liu, Congressman Smith, all have made proposals which are in the legislation right now. There's no chance of them being passed this year. Uh, Next year, given a different Congress, and possibly given a different president, maybe there's a chance. Tom, what do you want to add to that? Just just according to
1: recent polling uh, that bears this out, about 25% of the public seems to understand that the president has sole authority. Uh, But many more think that Congress is required, the congressional approval is required to start nuclear war, or that the president must get approval from his cabinet and secretary of defense. Uh, Those things are simply not true. And I think if the public understood uh, more broadly the powers that the president has to start nuclear war – They would be concerned, and that would translate into action. And so, again, that's part of what we're trying to do here is increase that level of understanding.
0: So, there we have it. The only real check against an unfit president is not to elect an unfit president. Arguably, that check has failed. But perhaps we might invigorate and reinforce that check if the general public knew that one man, their president, Can destroy civilization just because he wants to. There is no other formal check on that power, except if it came to it, crossing your fingers and hoping that the men taking any such irrational order from an unfit president would choose to rebel, would choose to mutiny. For our final segment of the episode, we'll leave the topic of presidential authority and turn to something very troubling, which I read about in the book. It's the idea of the nuclear sponge. I'd never heard of this concept before. Let me read you a quick extract from the book, which explains what it is. We call it the Upper Midwest. In nuke speak, it's known as the nuclear sponge. The United States currently deploys hundreds of nuclear missiles in silos across Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota and Wyoming. Each missile carries a nuclear payload, many times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, capable of killing millions of people. The Pentagon is now planning to build a new, deadlier generation of these missiles which are to be housed in these silos. Unlike submarines and bombers, which are mobile, these ICBMs are sitting ducks. Russia knows exactly where they are and can attack them at any time, but is deterred from doing so because US subs and bombers on alert would survive to retaliate against such a suicidal assault. But what would a US president do if he or she believed that such an attack was underway? That is, if he or she received an alarm from our missile warning system. In response to warning of an incoming attack, the President has two main options. One, launch the ICBMs before the presumed attack arrives, known as launch on warning. Or two, wait to make sure it's a real attack. If the President waits and the attack is real, most of the ICBMs would be destroyed. The choice should be easy. Launching nuclear weapons on warning of attack is simply too risky because our early warning systems are vulnerable to false alarms and cyber attacks, not to mention human error. The book goes on to say, One of the main ways that the Obama administration moved away from launch on warning was to ensure that it could meet its requirements for retaliation without using the ICBMs. In other words... The United States can fully respond to a nuclear first strike even if all of its ICBMs are destroyed. Thus, there is no need for a president to feel pressured into launching ICBMs in the face of incoming attack. The ICBMs are simply not needed for an effective response. We no longer need to use land-based ICBMs to achieve our mission as defined by the president, John Wolfstall said in an interview we can deter an attack with survivable systems meaning submarines we were able to take the ICBMs out of the front line and must have must fire forces in order to achieve damage limitation which allowed you to basically say we can ride out the attack Wolfstall continued and one of the nice things about that although we didn't do this was that you could basically say, oh well, ICBMs can go away, you don't need them. Moreover, launching the US ICBMs would not stop the incoming attack, if there really is one. It would simply be one component of the response, which would include nuclear weapons launched from bombers and nuclear subs. Former Secretary of Defence Jim Mattis, who supports keeping the option of launch on warning, told us, quote, We would likely never need to launch on warning. If the missiles are in the air, then deterrence has failed and our retaliation is not going to stop those in the air from striking us. So we would need to take a deep breath and decide what we're going to do. But for the deterrent to work, Mattis continued, we must make it very clear that we will end life in your capital city And other places, if you ever tried. An enemy attack does not condemn us to an immediate act or emotional reaction. It should be a studied, deliberate process. An immediate reactive launch would be necessary only if needed to stop additional launches. And let's skip ahead to the nuclear sponge. The book says, why then do we have ICBMs at all? According to official policy, even if these missiles are never launched, they still serve a useful purpose, to be destroyed in the ground along with the missileers and all the people that live anywhere near them. Their purpose is to absorb a nuclear attack from Russia, acting as a giant nuclear sponge or missile sink. As STRATCOM Commander General Heighton said in March 2019, that's one of the big values of our ballistic missiles. 400 ballistic missiles create a huge targeting problem for any adversary. The only way to get after 400 hardened nuclear missiles is with a whole bunch of incoming weapons. And if you decide to attack those... Then you pretty much are guaranteeing that we'll attack back. That's deterrence in a nutshell, and that creates a huge element of our deterrent process. It would be a missile sink. And one final sentence in this section, the authors write: "Can it possibly make sense to draw a nuclear attack toward the United States rather than away from it? Even during the Cold War, analysts challenged this plan." Claiming it was, quote, madness to use United States real estate as a great sponge to absorb Soviet nuclear weapons. So that's what the nuclear sponge refers to. And I will let my expert guests tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Well, I, I, you know, actually uh, like this story because people tend to assume that all nuclear policies are logical. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this one is a good example of policies that, that are not logical and simply make no sense. Um, you know, it, and I don't think the people that live in the upper Midwest, in the states that you mentioned, you know, Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Wyoming, I don't think they understand that they are essentially nuclear targets. Mm-hmm. They have a big target on their backs. Uh, the main reason for our 400 ICBMs that are deployed across these states uh, the main mission is to be destroyed in the ground. Uh, and and the spoken rationale for that from our strategic uh, weapons um, leaders uh, is to act as a nuclear sponge or a missile sink. And, when, when, and they literally will use those words and they will say the point that we, the reason why we have these weapons uh, is if Russia considers a nuclear attack, which is a very low probability. But if Russia were considering a nuclear attack, uh, they would, at a minimum, have to attack all these 400 ICBMs with one or more nuclear weapons from their side apiece, and so this would absorb um, a large chunk of the Russian attack. And that's true as far as it goes, but but you know we have to counter with the argument that even if you didn't have any of those ICBMs, uh, Russia would still be deterred from attacking because they would not be able to attack are submarine-based weapons at sea. So if these ICBMs are not required for deterrence, and at the same time they create this danger of a false alarm, why do we have them? And we simply haven't gotten a good answer from uh, military officials other than this nuclear sponge uh, mission, which I certainly find um, hard to take seriously.
0: It, it does seem strange why why we still have them. But I suppose if if a politician was brave enough to stand up and say, let's get rid of them, there would be some quarters who'd be accusing him of being a commie or a traitor or something. It seems as though there wouldn't be room just now for any kind of logical, calm debate.
1: Right. And, and so, you know, on any issue, you have to use the, uh, I call it the politics policy meter, right? And you can imagine a dial going back and forth. On, on ICBMs, uh, there's very little policy that makes sense there, but there's a lot of politics. And the politics here is that these missile systems cost a lot of money. For example, the government, the U.S. government, is looking to replace uh, all of those missiles for a, uh, at the cost of about $100 billion. Um, and so that's a lot of money that, that will create a lot of jobs in these states, in the upper Midwest, that often don't have a lot else going on. So for the politicians in these states, these are real jobs, and they perceive them to be jobs that are hard to come by. So it's very hard to get them to support removing those missiles for policy reasons when the politics are so strong in their own minds to support these systems. And really, the only way we think that can be done is if the president uh, takes the initiative from the top, but also with strong public support. And it takes both of those things, and neither one alone will suffice.
0: So that's the end of our interview. Thanks to William Perry and Tom Kalina for speaking to me via Skype. And of course, you can buy their book, which is out now. A reminder of the title, it's The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Maybe in a future podcast episode, we'll take a look at the British system of launching nuclear weapons, which (laughs) in typically eccentric, bumbling British style involves... References to gravediggers, loose change and secret handwritten letters. I really hope you've enjoyed this special extended episode. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell and you'll also find my guests there too, William Perry and Tom Kalina. You can also find me on Facebook at Nuclear Britain or on my website juliemcdowell.com And if you've enjoyed the podcast... You might like to donate some cash each month, and you can do that via Patreon. My page is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and you can donate as much or as little as you like, and cancel without fuss at any time. This week's new patrons are Michael Ryan and Martin Lewis, so thank you both of you and welcome. And my long-standing supporters, Linda Wilnough and Wynne Grant, also increased their amounts. And I'm deeply grateful to them, both for donating and for being long-standing listeners. And allow me another few seconds to give a shout-out to the following patrons. Remember, they're the people who make sure this podcast is free from adverts. We're saying thank you this week to Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Gary Watson, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Simon Reed. Lynette Walsh, Richard Lewis, Oliver Wiles, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Kevin Buter and Simon Allison. So thank you everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do retweet, put it on Facebook or do the old-fashioned thing, which is just tell your friends. (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. Thanks to all my patrons. Thanks, of course, to William Perry and Tom Kalina. And their new book out now is called The Button the new nuclear arms race and presidential power from Truman to Trump. And I'll be back next Sunday with another episode.